Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast by your host, Lauren Lucio. This week, I am talking about a case with so many moving parts, it makes the astronomical clock in Prague look like a Fisher Price toy. If you can hear the rain in this recording, it's because it's raining and I can't control the weather. But I actually think it's a nice touch for this case, recording on a dark and stormy night. It's very fitting for a mystery like the one I am about to tell you. First, I want to say my richest source of information for this case was a book published called Mountain of the Dead by Keith McClowski, which I have linked in my show notes. Keith has actually been to the site where this incident has taken place and he spent time in Russia obtaining information and he did an amazing job. I have also cited the website dyatlovpass.com as it was also an incredible archive of information. Let's go. Let's dive deep into the Dyatlov Pass incident. February 27th, 1959, the frozen mutilated bodies of five experienced Soviet mountaineers are found on a northern Russian mountain pass called Kolatshikol, or translated, it is called Mountain of the Dead. The scene in which they were found was extremely suspicious and nothing made sense, such as the injuries to the bodies, what they were wearing when they were found, where they were found, and where were the other missing four from the group. The nine hikers originally set out on Mount Atorton, which translates to don't go there. But a snowstorm kicked up and led them to go off track into local Manzi tribe territory, where they set up camp for the night on February 1st. We know this because of their diary that was recovered from their sliced up tent located a mile away from their bodies. Why were they a mile away from their tent in negative 26 degrees Celsius? partially naked and burned with no shoes. These were all extremely experienced mountaineers. Let's jump back a bit and take this from the beginning. Igor Dyatlov, 23 years old, took eight other hikers on a two-week ski hike adventure in the Ural Mountains. Six of them, including Dyatlov, attended the Ural Polytech Institute. Two had recently graduated from the university, and one had never attended that university at all. Um, and he was over a decade older than the rest of the group. The seven men and two women, most of whom belonged to the sports club at the university, were going to graduate from a level two to a level three uh, certified experienced hikers which in that time was the highest level in the Soviet Union. The Cold War was in full swing and communism was very prevalent. They were all very fit and strong individuals with highly regarded experience in this field. After traveling a couple of days by train and truck and, and ski and hike, they were already down one group member. Yuri Yudin suffered from an injury and couldn't go on. He had to turn around. He couldn't make the full trip. He couldn't go on um, the skiing, hiking part of the adventure. And eventually he was actually diagnosed with uh, acute radicalitis, also better known as sciatica. And what happens um, is that the spinal nerve roots are pinched. It's, it's pretty common. You yourself could have sciatica. You probably know someone who has sciatica 
It happens. It was originally 10 in the group, but it was now down to nine. They reach an abandoned geology camp where they stayed for the night before starting off on their expedition. The group sat around a fire. Uh, one of the group members, 23-year-old Rustam Slobodin, he played his mandolin and they stayed at the fire until 3 a.m., then went to bed for the night. How badass is this group camping at an abandoned settlement before heading out into extreme remoteness in very unforgiving weather and terrain i just have so much respect for people who do these extreme um, hikes and adventures it is so scary the morning of january 28th they embarked on the planned journey all went smoothly the first day and by 5 30 that evening they had set up camp for the night they somehow hiked with a tent big enough for the entire group that was customized by the group leader igor dyatlov and had even had privacy curtains for the women if you have ever done an overnight trek then you would know that every ounce counts and i couldn't imagine carrying that much canvas on such an extreme expedition as they were trekking with all the supplies on their backs no horses or help from sherpas or mules it was all them the route they were taking was classified as the highest level of difficulty meaning this was no well-groomed trail the next part really blew my mind igor dyatlov had also built and brought a wood burning stove including chimney and all and it was fitted into the entry of the tent who carried that i wonder a 10 person tent and a wood burning stove with a chimney plus all the other gear they had such as skis poles cameras shoes food pots knives first aid kits and personal effects and everything else that goes into a multiple week trek that night when it was time for everybody to go to bed there was a fight about who would sleep by the stove I didn't hear why nobody wanted to sleep by the stove, but if I had to guess, it would be that it was really hot to sleep by, or the person next to it would have to keep it going and therefore have to wake up every couple hours to restoke it. Or maybe whoever slept by it didn't get as much um, space to stretch out. The group or Dyatlov or both decided that 23-year-old Yuri Krivoshenko had to sleep by the stove. Perhaps Krivoshenko was the shortest and didn't need much legroom, but either way, he expressed his displeasure. He started yelling at them. He started yelling that they had all betrayed him, and he kept up the argument, but eventually he did sleep by the stove. January 29th, the temperature was negative 13 degrees Celsius. They took a hunting path made by the local Manzi tribe by the river, and all went well on the trek that day. January 30th and 31st, the trek got harder as they were no longer following the Manzi hunting trail and had to basically blaze their own trail, which takes a lot of energy and is very slow going. The last journal entry was made on the 31st of January and said they were all exhausted and had eaten dinner in the tent, which was set up by a tree line. We know they set up camp on a slope February 1st, as that is where the search team found the tent. We can only assume that the group had set up camp by 5 p.m. as that's when it starts to get dark there that time of year. I'm not sure why they chose that slope as being experienced mountaineers, they would have known a slope is not a good place to camp. Some think perhaps they were just testing their skills. This trek was estimated to take them around two weeks. Dyatlov was going to send the university a telegram between February 12th and 14th to let them know that they had come back down from the mountain and were heading back to school. 
After a week went past the expected telegram date, a search team was sent out February 20th, and the tent was located on the 26th. When they found the tent, they noticed that there was um, puncture holes inside of the tent as if um, stabbed from the inside out with a knife. And these holes were located just at about sitting level or like a crouching level as if they were looking out at something. But that's really disturbing because why couldn't they go outside of the tent? Why couldn't they look outside of the tent? Why did they have to maim one of their, you know, most important pieces of possession for the rest of their trek? So it must have been something really alarming for them to do something like that. Also, the one side of the tent had been sliced open, almost like the the almost like the whole wall was sliced right open uh, from the inside as well, as if they were all in a panic and couldn't use the entry of the tent to escape. So they had to slice the side of the tent and then run out of the slice on the side of the tent. The evidence left behind at the camp appeared they had dinner and were settled in for the night when when this panic took over, when something happened and sent them fleeing. February 27th, five of the nine group members' bodies were found over a mile away from the camp. The first two bodies were discovered by the tree line under a cedar tree, partially naked, laying side by side, and it appeared they had been moved after death. There was evidence of a small fire that they had made in attempt to keep warm. The cedar tree had broken limbs going up five meters as if they had tried to climb the tree and had possibly fallen out. 21-year-old Yuri Doroshenko was one of those two bodies. He was found face down wearing a vest, a shirt, a short sleeve shirt, knit pants with shorts over top of the pants and socks and no shoes. The pants had been ripped up and the left sock had burn marks on it. His fingers had skin torn off. His ears and nose had frostbite. He had burns on his head and foot, along with scrapes and bruises on his body. His ears, nose, and lips had blood on them. He had, he had gray fluid on his cheek, which had come from his mouth, which is believed that can happen from extreme force on the chest. It could be likely he fell from the tree and landed on his chest, but why he was in the tree and what made them flee so fast he didn't put shoes on knowing the risk that poses is is uh, it's it's nobody knows why the so this indicates absolute immediate danger at the camp they had to get away very quickly his death was labeled as hypothermia. The body laying next to Doroshenko was that of 23-year-old Yuri Krivoshenko. He was found wearing a shirt, a long sleeve shirt, swimming pants, long pants, and one torn sock on his left foot, uh, and also no shoes. His ears were frostbit. The tip of his nose was missing. He had bruises on his left buttock, leg, thigh, and forehead. Also the right side of his chest. He had bruising cuts and burns to his uh, foot, legs, and hands. His fingers on both hands had torn skin. And they found a chunk of his own knuckle in his mouth that he had bitten off. His death was listed as hypothermia. The next body they found a bit further from the first two, as if heading back to the tent from the fire by the cedar tree. And it was the body of 23-year-old group leader Igor Dyatlov. 
his body was face up and his fists were clenched. He was wearing a fur coat, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, pants, and ski pants. He had on a wool sock on his right foot and a cotton sock on his left foot, and he was also not wearing any shoes. He also had a watch on, and the time it stopped working was 531. His fist had bruising on the knuckles as though he had been in a fight and was punching someone or something. He had cuts and bruises on his face and ankles. The long-sleeved shirt he was wearing was identified by the 10th member of the group, Yuri Yudin, who suffered the injury and didn't end up going on the hike, but he said he had given that shirt to Doroshenko. It could be that Doroshenko died first and Dyatlov took the shirt off his body in an attempt to keep himself warmer. And maybe it was Dyatlov that moved the bodies of Doroshenko and Krivoshenko side by side. Maybe Dyatlov was also at the cedar tree with them. The next body to be discovered was one of the women of the group, 22-year-old Zenaida Cole-Magrova. Uh, she was found as if also trying to get back to the tent. She was wearing two hats, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, two pairs of pants, three pairs of socks, an ankle wrap, and no shoes. She had frostbite on her fingers, hands, and palms. Also, they were bruised to hell. She had bruising on her face and a mysterious long stick-shaped bruise on her side. Her death was listed as hypothermia due to a violent accident. The next body found was 23-year-old Rustam Slobodan. He was also most likely headed back to the tent when he died. He was wearing a shirt, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, two pairs of pants, four pairs of socks, and he had his boot soles on his body, and this is used as a method to dry them. He had one boot on his right foot, and he was wearing a watch, um, and that watch stopped working at 8.45. In his pocket, he had his passport and some change. It also appeared as if uh, he was moved after death as well. His injuries consisted of internal bleeding in both temples, a large skull fracture, upper right eyelid, bruised, bloody nose, swollen lips, swelling and cuts on the right half of his face, torn skin on the right forearm, bruising on his left arm, palm, and tibia. His knuckles and hands were also bruised as if being in a fist fight. The autopsy report stated he had probably lived after suffering those injuries, but then died from the cold, and his death was also listed as hypothermia. It wouldn't be until months later in May that the local Manzi tribe discovered the remaining four bodies of the group, just 75 meters from the tree where the first two bodies were discovered. They had been covered in so much snow the original search party could not see them. The snow would have been melting as it was coming into spring and it was then the snow den was discovered and the bodies revealed. In an attempt to shield themselves from the cold, it appears they had dug out a den in the snow, which can actually be very warm and safe when built properly. These bodies were found wearing more clothing than the rest of the group, which may indicate they had gone back and taken the clothes off the corpses of the other dead group members to survive. The real question is, why couldn't they have gone back to the tent uh, where all of their supplies were? They each had two pairs of shoes there. They had so much, so much stuff there to survive, and, and for some reason they just couldn't 
get back that, you know, mile, mile and a half to where all that stuff was. 20-year-old Lamilla Dubonino was one of the two women of the group, and she was found wearing a short sleeve and a long sleeve shirt, two sweaters, underwear, long socks, two pairs of pants, a small hat, two pairs of socks, and no shoes. The pants were ripped and burned and were actually Kravashenko's. It would appear she had tried to make a third pair of socks from a Kravashenko sweater as she had bits of it wrapped around her left foot and the other bit was found in the snow, presumably meant for her right foot. Her injuries were 10 broken ribs total on left and right side, broken nose to the point it was flat against her face, so very broken nose. Her jaw, cheekbones, and teeth were exposed due to missing soft tissue. Her lips were missing and her eyes and tongue had been removed. The autopsy reported blood found in her stomach, which would mean she was alive when her tongue was removed. There was also bruising on her left thigh and temporal bone damage. She had massive hemorrhaging in her heart, which is what ended her life, in this case, not hypothermia. Um, like the other bodies, it is believed she was still alive when she sustained the chest injuries leading to her death. Her body was discovered pressed up against a rock face first on her knees right beside a flowing water source. This is just my theory, but I managed to find uh, a photo online of the discovery of her body. And to me, it appears she had been kneeling down on her knees, drinking from the stream of water when she was attacked from behind, leaving her head and face smashed into a rock. Although blunt force trauma was not her cause of death, she did have injuries to her head. Her face would have been froze to the rock and perhaps her soft tissue decayed off as a result of the thaw and being out there for months. But how could her eyes and tongue be removed? Let's just say by scavenger animals, which is what I thought when I first heard of the removal of her eyes and tongue. Um, but her face was flat up and frozen against a rock. It's said that Dubonina was a very strong and outspoken woman. So perhaps when all hell broke loose and they were forced into this Mad Max way of survival, that whatever happened there, whoever attacked them, whatever, if somebody attacked them, you know, we still don't know that. If maybe her tongue was purposefully cut out because she because she was so outspoken, maybe they cut out her tongue as a punishment for disagreeing or arguing or, you know, making whatever was happening harder. I have some theories on that, but we'll get to the theories later. The next two bodies were found together, 37-year-old Semen Zoltrov and 23-year-old Alexander Kolotov, which were located near the den, believed to have died in the early morning of February 2nd, perhaps surviving a few hours longer than the first bodies found. Oddly enough, he died on his 38th birthday. Zolotarov was much older than everyone in the group. He was found wearing underwear, two pairs of pants, one pair of ski pants, a short and long sleeve shirt, a sweater, long coat, two hats, a scarf, socks, and shoes. The hat, coat, and garments he was wearing were reportedly previously Dubonina's and had appeared to be forcibly removed as if they were cut off her body. In his pockets were coins, a compass, and a newspaper, perhaps for lighting fires, which could mean he was outside the tent lighting a fire for the group when they had to flee. Um, you know, and, and he was also dressed the warmest. He was discovered with a camera 
camera around his neck. The film was badly damaged by water, but I do believe they did end up um, salvaging and developing that film. And on that film, they found the last photos were of mysterious lights in the darkness. Yuri Yudin, the hiker that got injured and didn't go, later identified that that camera found around Zolotrov's neck as a hidden camera. He said he'd never seen it before. He knew the group had only four cameras and he had never seen this fifth camera. The four cameras were found in the abandoned tent. Being a communist country, I can't imagine secrets were taken lightly. Zolotrov's injuries were five broken ribs, the ribs were broken in more spots than one on some of the ribs, which is called a flailed chest, also meaning his chest wall was destabilized from blunt force trauma. Uh, and although th this is comparable to the impact of a car accident, but there was no soft tissue damage on the chest, which is strange because it's believed that the chest injury happened while he was still alive. And if you think about hitting someone with the force of a car crash, you would think that shit would bruise. He was missing tissue around his eyebrows, exposing the bone. He had a deep gash in the back of his head. And like Dabonina, he was also missing his eyes. His cause of death was listed as multiple acts of violence leading to fractures of ribs causing hemorrhaging. This man was known to be a warrior. He was a member of the Communist Party. He was in the Russian army. He fought in World War II in horrific battles with brutal killings. This was no pushover of a man. Whatever caused this was incredibly powerful. 23-year-old Alexander Kolovatov was found wearing a vest, long sleeve shirt, a sweater, a fleece sweater, ski jacket, which was burned on the left sleeve, which makes me wonder if he took that jacket from Doroshenko or Krivoshenko because they were found with burns to the left side of their bodies and almost no clothing on. The jacket was also undone, which is not how someone who wants to keep warm wears their jacket. Perhaps someone tried to take this jacket off him or maybe his fingers were so cold he couldn't do it up. He was also wearing shorts, pants, ski pants, canvas pants, woolen socks with burns, and another pair of socks under those, and I believe no shoes. His injuries are very strange and highly suggest foul play, just like the others. But in his case, he had a snapped neck and a wound behind his ears, which is a sign of a special forces kill. And he was found next to Zolotrov, who was at one point in the Russian army. His other injuries included a broken nose uh, and missing eyebrows exposing the bone beneath. And surprisingly, even with the broken neck, his death was labeled as hypothermia. So maybe his neck was broken after death. What I read didn't really specify. The last body found was 24-year-old Nikolay Brignoli. He was wearing two hats, a fur one and a knitted one, a shirt, sweater, and a jacket, underwear, sweatpants, cotton pants, ski pants, wool socks, and Russian winter shoes. So he had shoes on. He was wearing two watches, one on each wrist. One stopped at 8.14 and the other stopped at 8.39. He may have also been outside of the tent before the panic struck as he seemed to be prepared. His injuries were bruising on the upper left lip and left side of face, 
internal bleeding on lower right forearm and i'm not sure but that sounds like perhaps it was crushed by something he had a skull fracture all over the left side of his skull which would also take extreme force but the weird thing is he had no soft tissue damage in relation to the skull fracture which is very strange and unknown how this could happen as his cause of death was skull fracture meaning he was alive before he got that that skull fracture so here we have nine bodies with a multitude of different injuries. We have six deaths from hypothermia, two deaths caused by chest trauma, yet no soft tissue damage, and one death caused by a skull fracture and also no tissue damage. To make this even more confusing, there was radiation detected on some clothing found on the bodies. There was also radiation detected in the area. So now I'm going to talk about um, each hiker and provide a little bit of background about them. The leader, Igor Dyatlov, he was a fifth year radio engineering student at the university. He was in a relationship with one of the women on the expedition, uh, Cole Magrova, and she had recently been in a relationship with another man on the expedition as well, Doroshenko. It was noted all was civil between the three of them. They handled that well. It was, it was, it was all good. Dyatlov was known to love the mountains and be a good photographer. He was in very good physical shape. From what I gathered from the information I read about him, he was a good, friendly man, a born leader. He was trustworthy and level-headed. People trusted him to take him out on these dangerous expeditions, gladly. They, you know, they would put their lives in his hands. Cole Magrova was also a radio engineering student, and as stated above, she was now in a relationship with Dyatlov. She was beautiful, smart, and ambitious, the type to light up any room she walked into with her amazing energy. She also loved photography and took most of the pictures on this hiking trip, which are now very famous, and it's the only visual documentation of this mystery. They are in every article, book, and documentary about this case. It was thought that another man on the trip was also interested in her, the oldest member of the group, Zolotrov. Zolotrev was the only member of the group that did not or was not a student of the university they were all a part of. He was a sergeant in the Russian army. He served in World War II as a frontline soldier. He was the leader in a Soviet youth organization. He was a revered fighter and won medals for close combat fighting. He won medals for bravery. He was a member of the Communist Party. He attended a military engineering university and then went to Minsk Institution for Physical Fitness, then became a tourist guide. But somewhere amongst all of that, it was said that he drifted for a few years. Uh, drifted? Mm, no way. Not in communist Russia did anyone drift. What you're doing and who you're doing it with was always known to the government. I would think drifting would be grounds for imprisonment then, but I... You know, I'm not sure. I don't know about all the laws that were happening in the Cold War. So what was he doing in those undocumented years? And then the sudden interest in physical activity. It was noted that he was not a good guide and he leaned more towards drinking and interested in women. He also had some tattoos that he kept hidden because in that time, tattoos were symbols that you had to earn in the criminal world. And to have a tattoo you didn't earn was just not acceptable, to put it lightly. 
His ties to the criminal world are unknown, and although they saw the tattoos on the frozen corpse, his sister claims he never had any. So... I have a couple of my own questions on this, such as did he hide the tattoos because he hadn't earned them or did he hide them to cover up his criminal relations? I find it doubtful he didn't earn them. It also makes me wonder if they could in fact prove that it was his body recovered with those tattoos. Kolovatov was a physics student at the university. He worked in a secret laboratory in Moscow organized by secret police. There were a lot of secrets in the Cold War, very tight-lipped time, so this doesn't surprise me, nor does it really alarm me. The secret lab he was working for was developing protection from ionizing radiation. He then transferred to the Institute of Organic Materials and was working with materials for nuclear use. He was described as boring by women, but nonetheless very intelligent and known to have a bit of a sense of humor. Krivoshenko graduated the university as a qualified engineer. He worked at a secret closed nuclear city. In 1957, he was on a cleanup crew for a nuclear accident, which is no joke. And it could be possible he still had some radiation on his clothes a year later. And that's where the radiation detection came from on some of the hikers' bodies because it was on maybe some of the clothes that he had worn during that cleanup. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Slobodan had also graduated the university as an engineer. He loved music and played the mandolin. He was also known to be an extremely fit runner and loved camping. Seems to be a very cool outdoorsy type. Others described him as very likable, so he must have not been without his charm. Doroshenko was also a radio engineering student. He was Dubonina's former boyfriend before Dyatlov, and he was known for being very brave. He one time chased a brown bear out of his camp by running at it with a geology hammer. Wow. As someone who has lived with bears in the far north of Canada in the remote bush, I have full appreciation for this act of bravery. I find it incredibly scary when a bear wanders into camp. <laughs> Never once have I ran at it with a hammer. I have screamed, blew a whistle, hid in my van, and watched my sister's husband scared away with a chainsaw. Hi, Chris, if you're listening. But never a hammer and never running at it. If not for nothing, Doroshenko was also the tallest guy in the group. So much for keeping your secrets up high. <laughs> that's, a, um, that's a line off The Office, if you guys watch The Office. Dubonina was a fourth-year engineering and economics student at the university and the youngest of the group. She was certainly ambitious and smart to be in the position that she was in at such a young age. She loved to sing, photography, and the outdoors. She was an experienced ski tourist guide and had even led a group through the Ural Mountains a year earlier. Can you recall what you were doing at 20? I had not accomplished half of what she had. She was strong in character and physically. She, one time, she was accidentally shot with a rifle while on a camping trip, and it was noted that she was in good spirits while on the way to be treated for the gunshot wound. It would have been very painful and she just was so stoic about the entire situation she was very bold brave and a born leader 
Brignoli graduated from the university just one year earlier with a major in civil engineering. He was working for a construction department and was known to be funny, friendly, and lighthearted. He was well-liked and popular and very experienced as a hiker in a multitude of difficulty levels. So, so now that we know who was involved in this and where they were found and what they were wearing and which injuries they sustained, um, let's get into some theories. So there's about 75 different theories on what happened that night. I'm not going to go into all, I haven't even read all of them. I've just, um, you know, read the most popular ones. So yeah, let's talk about some theories. Some people think that the lights on the recovered film from the camera found around Zolotarov's body could have been evidence of aliens. Other people around Russia had seen the lights in the sky that same evening. And that would also explain the radiation levels and perhaps even the injuries as some of them seem to be unexplained and unlike anything we have seen before. Another popular theory is the local Manzi tribe had attacked them for being on their sacred land as they uh, stumbled onto their territory and set up camp. This theory doesn't really have any legs for a few reasons. One, they are a very peaceful tribe that keep to themselves. They wouldn't want to draw attention. Two, it was disproven that the land was sacred to that tribe. Three, they helped the Soviets during the search. If they had been involved, they could have hid the bodies and then destroyed um, the evidence, like the tent and stuff. Although oftentimes the guilty person, you know, they tend to want to help in the investigation. So I don't know. I'm not totally sold on this theory as um, the injuries also doesn't make sense for this situation. I feel like we would have seen stab wounds, not um, chest crushed in with no soft tissue damage. Another theory is catabatic wind. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I'm not sure. This would mean the wind became so powerful and picked up godlike strength as it ripped down the mountain, creating a hurricane effect, which could be why they ran for the trees. But it makes me wonder about a few things, such as why did they cut their way out of the tent? Perhaps the stove was in the entryway and, you know, they couldn't get through. Maybe the wind blew it over. That could be why some of their socks were burned, you know, um, or maybe the wind had blown mass amounts of snow in front of the entry point and they couldn't dig their way out. So they had to slice their way out the opposite wall. But how do these winds explain all or some of the injuries? Maybe they ran because of the wind and snow hurricane effect, um, got to the tree line and then started fighting each other for clothing. And the three that were found frozen on their way back back from the tree line moving towards the tent got lost because of the snowstorm because there was zero visibility being from canada i can say that for sure high winds and snow when you have a a snowstorm and it makes a curtain of snow you have zero visibility you can't see anything in front of you the next theory is very popular. It comes up a lot. This is the Yeti theory. One of the pictures developed from the group's camera had an image that has been speculated was a Yeti. The image is of a large standing figure in the distance with no detail and and no face showing. A Yeti would be strong enough to inflict the injuries on the group if in fact Yetis are real. Many people think so. Many people think they exist in remote cold areas. And I even read a about one in a book called The Long Walk by Slawomir Rawitz. 
Um, and it's a true story about a Polish prisoner escaping from a prison camp in Siberia. Um, he's the, he's writing in first person. He walked over the course of a few years in extreme terrain, including Siberia, in the winter and the Gobi Desert, all the way to India. In that book of real accounts, the author claims to have seen a Yeti. It's such a good book and I highly recommend it. Another very popular theory, which could make sense because there were there was a lot of work happening um, in nuclear facilities around Russia at that time. So there's a nuclear weapons testing theory. Um, and that theory consists of the testing of a nuclear weapon that emits a frequency your ears can't hear, but your body can pick it up. And it sends people into sheer panic. Also, while on the nuclear topic, it um, was theorized that perhaps the snow had levels of radiation on it and the group was using the snow to boil and and drink it. That was their water supply. And perhaps that sent them into a psychotic episode maybe, but that still doesn't explain all the injuries either unless you pair it with this next theory. In 2019, the case was reopened and the Russian government came to the conclusion on the most probably the most popular theory, and that's the avalanche theory. The group was camping on a slope to which they dug into, and it's said that because of the degree of the slope, it is very possible that eventually the falling snow built up on the slope and slid off onto the group as they were sleeping in the tent, which would explain the blunt force trauma and the crushed chest and, and broken ribs as the snow would have weighed hundreds of pounds, crashing down on them. Also, perhaps that's why Zolotrov and Briganoli were more prepared, because they were outside the tent taking photos with the camera found on Zolotrov's body. But again, not everything checks out. Also, there was no evidence of an avalanche. And in the photos, um, they show the tent and where the tent where the rescue team found the tent, there were ski poles sticking straight up um, out of the ground beside the tent. And I'm no avalanche expert, believe it or not, but like by any means. But wouldn't an avalanche also have taken down a flimsy ski pole if it can crush in somebody's ribs and head? Whatever happened that night to send them slicing out of their tent and go running in negative 26 degrees Celsius with no shoes on, half-dressed, must have been something terrifying. And it is possible they couldn't have gotten back to the tent due to the blizzard. I also think it's possible they were fighting one another given the uh, facial given the facial bruising and knuckle bruising, either one another or somebody else that we don't know about. Um, and where were their eyes? Where did, where did their eyes and tongues go? They were never found around that area at all. It's just, they were just gone. So the mystery remains of where the eyes and tongue went, along with many mysteries about this case. It's also possible that what we know isn't even the truth. It has been speculated that a lot of photos, documents, and autopsy reports we have access to have been altered and tampered with. That makes perfect sense, given the time and political situation of the occurrence of this mystery. That's just a speculation. Nothing has been proved that anything was tampered with, but I'm just saying some people are saying this. Here's what I think think. And I have no proof at all. I'm just piecing it together and asking myself, why would someone want them dead? 
We know secrets sure were important in communist Russia during the Cold War. We know that. We know that at least two group members worked at very sensitive and secret organizations, and at least one group member may have had ties to criminal acts, as well as the Communist Party and Russian army. Is it possible one of them was a spy or knew something they shouldn't have known? Yes, that's right. I said spy. And I'm not even exaggerating, as Russia was extremely paranoid about spies during the Cold War. We know some of the injuries are types caused by special forces. We know fistfights happened. We know eyes and tongues were missing in two of the group members, which can signify silencing someone and seeing things that should not have been seen. We know this has been labeled as an avalanche accident, but we also know the evidence contradicts this in some ways. Is it possible Zoltrov has something to do with this? He really sticks out in this group. Maybe he was a plant. What we don't know is how his chest injury was caused while he was still alive and there was no soft tissue damage. When you get a flailed chest, you usually have soft tissue damage unless you're dead when it happens. That's one thing I really want to know more about. Either way, we will never ever know what happened that night of February 1st and early morning February 2nd on that mountain pass, which has now been renamed Dyatlov Pass in memory of the group. I will be posting the recovered photos discovered on the um, the film cameras that the groups had, as well as photos that the um, search party had taken when they found the tent. Um, they're, it's, it's, they're haunting. It's quite interesting to look at these images. So I'm going to post those on the Hell No Instagram. Um, so check those out if you want. And to end this case, I'm not even sure who to say hell no to. I'm Um, to aliens, avalanches, yetis, nuclear testing, and mutilation, I say hell no. Thank you for listening to Hell No, a true crime podcast, and see you next week.